You've asked, we've answered. When and how do you hire a financial advisor? It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Brian, I think this is so wonderful because obviously it is no secret. The entire world knows our day job, what we do is we actually are financial advisors. And one of the things I think that entire people- Entire world, I like that. The entire world, because we're, we're we're worldwide now. A lot of people in my orange theory class have no idea who we are. Well, they need to check out the Money Guy <laughs> show, I feel like. A few of the coaches do, but not everybody in the world knows so who fun, we are. That's because I actually like prospect all through my CrossFit class. Like I tell them I all. I, okay, fair I, If y'all want to know the truth, before gym class starts, I answer YouTube comments. Oh, there you go. There you going. go. Perfect. So that's why I don't talk to anybody. I answer. It's all your fault. Everybody out there- your fault that I'm not being social is because I'm answering YouTube comments. So I think what's really interesting is that a lot of folks, because the show, reach out to us and say, hey, uh, I want to work with you guys. I'm looking to work with you, yada, 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 yada. And I think a lot of folks are really surprised when we answer and say, hey, thank you so much. That's incredibly wonderful. But it might not make sense for you to work with an advisor just yet. We're not one that thinks that everybody needs a financial advisor. And so one of the things we want to help kind of walk through today is, when does an advisor make sense? Why does an advisor make sense? How do you pick an advisor? And what are the things that you need to know? And what to expect. Mm-hmm. I mean, because success is when you know what you're going to get and you don't have expectations that aren't met. Mm-hmm. So this will be good. Now, it's going to feel, this is something, this is why we don't do these shows. Like I, I thought the la- I thought we did this show like last week. And then I looked and it's been years it's been since we've done this show. So it definitely needs to be touched. And I think the reason we've been scared to touch on this is because it does seem like one of those things. I don't want, I've always been very hesitant to look like infomercials mm-hmm. or sales jobs, but this is an education platform and the best customer or consumer you can have is an educated customer. Yep. So this ties right into our platform of the abundance cycle and just learn, apply, grow, and just give it away. Yep. So let's kind of jump right in this thing. Let's first talk about, Bo, an overview of the world of financial advisors. Yeah, so we actually went and looked at the numbers, and we were kind of surprised because it looks like right now there are 271,700 financial advisors in the U.S., and this is all this data we're compiling is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the CFP. That number went down. Alpha. I was actually surprised by it that, too. It was down 200, employee, 200 financial advisors since we did this like two, two and a half years ago. So I wonder if that's folks retiring. I wonder if that's mergers. I wonder what the thing is that's caused that to go down. But I mean, it wasn't a, it could be a rounding error in the way they calculated, but it was 200 people. So we have 271,000, almost 272,000 financial advisors out there. Well, of that, 86,378 of those are CFP professionals, certified financial planners. And we'll talk a second about what that is and why it matters. But for right now, we just think that's the prerequisite. That's kind of the baseline. If you want to be a financial advisor, you should be a CFP. And then what we also thought was interesting is uh, one of the things, the terms that we're going to talk about is how advisors get paid. Well, about 1.4% or only 3,700 of those 272,000 advisors are fee-only advisors. That's us. We're the unicorns. That's right. And that's what I explain it. When I go talk to college capstone classes and others, we say, we're the unicorns. So, you know, this is, this is, we're a little unique. And that's what, it's probably, if we're going to explain that we're the unicorns with only 3,700 fee-only advisors, you're probably wondering, because look, you're realizing very quickly 
And I know this is not, they're not inclusive of all the numbers right. here, but it's still a pretty good point that only a third of people have gone out and got the professional certification. I mean, when you work with a public accountant, you kind of assume that you're, they're, they're on the road to getting their CPA That's license. Right. Um, somehow in financial planning, it doesn't work that way because you can see the lion's share, close to 70% of people. And, that, and that's the thing I've always hated about this industry. Anybody can call themselves a financial planner. You yep. can basically go sh- hang a shingle outside your front door and say, open for business. What do I need to do? Mm-hmm. So let's kind of go a little deeper so people know what the requirements are, what the standards are, and what the education kind of things that you ought to look for. So we think inside the financial planning world, there are really sort of three distinct business models that you ought to know about. And kind of the thing that differentiates visor, advisors, at least for the most part, is kind of how they're compensated. Yeah. That's a real easy way to see the difference between different types of advisors. So, Bo, let's let's kind of roll into these different types because, and, and here's the cool thing: I come from a background where I worked actually worked in two of these camps. Bo, you've worked in one of these camps, mm-hmm. so I think I we've got all three covered. Yep, that's exactly so, right. So let's kind of jump into these. So the very first one is the commission-based business model. Very simple, simply, these are advisors that are paid commissions for the products they sell. So a lot of times you see this with like loaded mutual funds or insurance companies. They sell you insurance policy ABC or mutual fund XYZ, and they receive a company a commission from the company whose products they are selling. And so you, you just said something that just triggered something that I hear people say. People were told sometimes about people that are pushing products is, don't worry, this is actually free to you. Mm-hmm. I am paid by the insurance company. That's, I'm paid by right. the brokerage company. Oh, that drives me nuts, by it, the way. It is, it is a pet peeve. So I, I just want you to know, you realize the price of the product that they're selling does. So they're, even though the insurance company is paying them, you ultimately are bearing that cost. That's so right. just know that that's a sales tactic. It's a little sleight of hand. I don't want you to fall victim to that. That's exactly right. Uh, the second one, so we have commission. Well, the very next business model is the fee-based business model. And so what this means is it's an advisor who's sort of paid through a combination. This is a hybrid. They receive some portion in fees, but they also do receive commissions as well. When I worked on the, when I, before I went fee only, mm-hmm. I worked for a CPA firm that we were more of the fee-based model because we sold life insurance. We also did financial planning and investment management. We did a lot annuities. of annuities, wrap accounts. Mm-hmm. We dabbled in annuities, sure. but really we were wrap account advisors. And when I say wrap account, it's it's the fact that we would go buy commissioned mutual funds, but we would waive the commissions that mm-hmm. the mutual fund companies would pay and then charge a, a, an assets under management sure. type fee. We'd still get some, some trails that might have changed because I've been out of that game for two decades. Sure. But at the time, you, you you waived a lot of the commissions, but it did allow you. So you did kind of look like a fee-only mm-hmm. advisor in the fact that you're getting paid under like assets under management or some retainer model, mm-hmm. but you still kept your right to go sell a life insurance product or something and get commissions and get paid. So you're getting paid both commissions as well as some type of fee structure. That's right. And so then the third, and this is the one that we alluded to, this is what we call kind of the unicorns, are the fee-only. Essentially, the way a fee-only advisor gets paid is directly from the clients they work with. So there's no outside company or third party paying them, they get paid directly from the client. And generally speaking, it's either through like an hourly model or a retainer model or an assets under management type model. Yeah. And and think about that because I think we have a lot of people that reach out if you're thinking about by the hour, that means you have an engagement that you think you just had a, a need that's going to go away after the project's yep. over. Retainer means you maybe you pay an annual fee, 
it's the same fee. And then asset center management, that is the majority of your bigger firms are going to be AUM, which means that they do take a percentage of the assets that they're actually adding value or managing for you. That's exactly right. But even inside there, it's, it gets even a little more nuanced. We'll kind of talk about that in a second. So the next thing I'd like to, to kind of, because I want to keep this rolling, mm-hmm. I don't want to overwhelm people, but I want to make sure we keep it going, is understanding the difference between financial planning standards. Because there are two big camps, and I think the public is clueless mm-hmm. on this. There was a big battle in Washington, and I bet we could walk down to the streets of Franklin, Tennessee, and not any of the 10 people we first uh-huh. asked would be like, what do you know about suitability rules? And they would be like, I don't know. Uh-huh. What? How about a fiduciary standard? They'd be like, What's that? Never heard of it. And by the way, I still have trouble spelling fiduciary. So this is a legit <laughs> issue. So it's it's one of those things that I think that the public has definitely got to disconnect. So we want to kind of open that up a little bit. And so what I thought was beautiful, Brian, is I think we ought to define both of them. So I'll kind of read yep. the definitions. But then I want you to share what they actually mean, because I've heard yeah. you do this 10,000 yeah. times, and I think you do it really, really well. So the suitability standard requires that a broker makes recommendations that are just suitable for the client situation. It doesn't necessarily have to be in their best interest. It just can't be grossly negligent. Yeah, because they're selling you a product. That's right. So then when we think about the fiduciary standard, it requires an advisor put the client's best interests ahead of their own, and they adhere to the RIA and it's forced by the SEC. So here's the illustration I always give people on this. Is, and this is, the older I get, the more sensitive I've come to what I put in my body and what I eat. Because they just have to pay attention. Because I know the healthier I eat, the cleaner I'm going to live, and yep. the probably longer I'll live. And that's all important. Well, it's kind of like that with money. You would think that you want to have the best things working for your long-term success financially. Here's the problem, though. Suitability. All it means, it doesn't have to be in your best interest. It doesn't even have to be the best product. You just have to fit into the term of suitable. So here's here's the perfect analogy. Candy. Every time you go to the movies and you get your Twizzlers, you get your your peanut M&Ms, and we'll throw the popcorn in there too, and the Coke, we'll throw it all in there. They can sell that, and the FDA and everybody hasn't shut that. The government hasn't shut them down because... Even though it's not healthy to eat popcorn, candy, and Twizzlers and everything else, it is suitable for human consumption. Yeah, it'll keep you alive. It's it, suitable. It'll it, do it that. It is suitable, meaning it's not going to kill you right now. But over the long term, it's not good for you. So a nutritionist who is probably, you go hire a nutritionist and they're going to put together a diet and they're going to tell you calorie intake, how your metabolic process is. They're never, ever going to say, it's not going to be unless it's your cheat day or it's something that gets you motivated. They're not going to tell you. They're not. They're going to throw suitability out the window, and they're going to actually tell you what the best foods, mm-hmm. you probably going to eat a lot more broccoli under a fiduciary standard That's than exactly you right. would with a suitability. Now, look, in the short term, it's going to be a lot more fun you know, getting sold because they're going to whine and dying you. They might even buy you a steak dinner if you go see their seminar. But I can tell you, long-term fiduciary where you have a legal obligation to put the clients in your best in- their interest ahead of your own mm-hmm. is going to be much better in the long term. Yeah, and we've just always liked that because what it naturally allows you to do is it just removes some of that guesswork. Whenever you go into a financial advising relationship, you are naturally kind of on edge. You're yeah. inviting someone in to just the deepest, darkest part of your life. And normally for most folks, it's kind of a taboo subject. So if you know the person on the other side of the table is required by the law to act in your best interest, it allows you to at least let your guard down a little bit. Um, Another thing that I think gets confusing for the public, certification, letters after your name, because it has gotten to the point, and and I was like, well, when we do this show, if I just talk about what we have, people are going to think that's very self-serving. Yep. 
So I'm very tense, very sensitive to that. So I said, what we're going to do is I'm going to go actually find a third party, something that everybody's heard of and see if they have an article. So I typed in and I, you know, I said, what's the credentials, the, the best credentials for a financial advisor? And there was an article that popped right up and it was the top three financial advisor credentials according to Investopedia. Okay. So this is a source. And I did this because you and I don't completely agree on this. There is some dissension so amongst the Money Guy the team The first on this. one I will read is the Certified Financial Planner designation. I'm going to read this quote for quote because I don't want you to think that I made something or added to it to, to make our point. But here's what Investopedia says about CFPs. Okay. Quote, a certified financial planner, a CFP, is bound by rigorous requirements set by the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards, the CFP board. There are four parts to the initial CFP certification, education, examination, experience, and ethics. A CFP candidate will need to put in up to 1,000 hours to complete the required coursework and the exam. The CFP applicant must have a minimal education level of a bachelor's degree in coursework in financial planning. The ethics component requires the applicant to meet the fitness standards for candidates and registrants and promises to follow the rules of conduct, which, conduct, which put the client's interest First. So you have to have a bachelor's degree, you have to put in the time to pass the approved curriculum, you have to pass the test, and then you have to have experience doing it, and you have to agree to be bound by the code of ethics. The, the fiduciary obligation, essentially. Right. So that's good. So that's that's the CFP. Now, I think it's interesting. So this one, we're not battling yet. It's not it's not a battle of us. I'm keeping my, my mouth closed. We are both CFPs. That is correct. Can we both agree we like the CFP We like the CFP. We consider that sort of a prerequisite for doing this for a living. We encourage all of our young associates to pursue the CFP designation. We think it's a solid one. So let me move to where it's not questionable because, look, I, I poke fun at Bo, but this is actually legit, and I'm proud of him for having this. I kind of bullied him into doing it. So the next one is Chartered Financial Analyst, and here's what it says about Chartered Financial Analyst. Quote, the prestigious Investing credential of Chartered Financial Analyst, CFA, is issued by the internationally recognized CFA Institute. The CFA is especially important in the areas of investment research and portfolio management. Similar to the CFP, there are rigorous ed educational experience and examination requirements for the CFA. It continues a little further. This is the part you probably go like. And this continued, quote, to become a regular member of CFA Institute, you will need to hold a bachelor's degree from an accredited institution or have equivalent education or work experience, according to the CFA Institute website. The CFA holder must also have 48 months of related professional work experience in investment-related field. That's almost 10,000 hours because, mm -hmm. you know, another year. The most challenging aspect of attaining the CFA certification are the three required examinations. Each are six hours and must be taken over several years. The CFA examination test topics from these disciplines, accounting, economics, ethics, finance, and mathematics. It's a deep dive for investment nerds. That that's what I would say the CFA is. It's a deep dive for investment nerds. Okay. I, I don't want you I don't want your head to swell up too much. That test is legit. Because there are three tests. And the pass rates on each of them, the highest is like, is it? Do they even make fifty percent? I think I think level three got to like fifty one percent once you made it past the first. So two. think about that. People, every test has around a fifty percent pass rate, but as you go deeper, so imagine you make it through the first cut, you pass the mm -hmm. CFA one exam, right? 
fifty percent or somewhere, somewhere probably more like thirty. Than it was like thirties in the in the level one. It goes like thirties, forties, and then fifties or around that. So only thirty percent something yeah. pass. Okay, yeah. so, at least in my exam cycle. So then you get to exam two. So you're like made it through the first cut, and then you get to exam two, and only forty something percent something make it through like that, that. Yeah, of the people who pass the, the, the first one, the first and one. then you get to the last one, and. It's 50% of everybody who passed one and two. Yeah. And we know people who've passed two and mm-hmm. just gave up after the third one. They were like, I can't do this anymore. And that's why I do want to give Bo credit because he passed all three on his first ex- first try. And he passed it, the last one, at three a week before his wedding. So kudos to you. <laughs> it was, I was happy to, happy to be done with it. But I want to give credit where credit's due because we could just stop there and talk about how wonderful my designations are, which are great. But I was surprised, and I'm happy you did this because I thought it was cherry-picking, and when I went to check your research, it was not cherry-picking. There was a third designation that was listed, and that designation was indeed the personal financial specialist. And this is what it says. The personal financial specialist is credentialed by the highly regarded American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. This profession, uh, professional designation, uh, this is, profession is a I didn't certified public accountant. I read yours, by the way. With additional expertise in all aspects of financial <laughs> and wealth management. The PFA studies estate planning, retirement planning, investing, insurance, and additional areas of personal financial planning. This designation also requires three years work experience, rigorous continuing professional education, and high ethical standards. Similar to the prior high-level certifications, the PFS must pass an exam. So it, too, is obviously a highly regarded, well-respected All that blowhardness to basically say a CPA that does financial planning. That's what what it is. And look, like I said, I get weird about this because it just so happens the three credentials that they used at Investopedia are the ones. And I think those are, if you ask me what are my, the ones Mm -hmm. that I get most respect when I see them, it is the CFP, CPA, you could say slash PFS, and the CFA, which you have. I don't, the rest are, I look at it as a lot of alphabetical soup that a lot of organizations that are trying to sell stuff do. And give so, out. some of them, you go pay a hundred bucks and you get it. So here's, here's the takeaway from that. If you're working with an advisor, if you're thinking about hiring an advisor, make sure you understand what the designations behind their name are. And just because they have a lot of them doesn't necessarily mean that they're good ones. You want to go do your own research there. And also understand their education background. You heard a lot of them required a bachelor's degree. Find out what that bachelor's degree is. Find out how long they've been doing this. Remember, I just did a show earlier where I talked about how I screwed up my parents' own account Mm -hmm. because who do you typically go hit up first when you don't have clients? Family and friends. Family and friends. Go blow it up on them. So you need 10,000 hours of expertise you know, I'd like you to have even more if you've got some assets behind you. So it's just understand what you're getting into. So let's now pivot into, this is a great segue. When do you need a financial advisor? Yeah. So obviously we mentioned right at the onset of the show, uh, we as financial advisors are of the opinion, not everyone needs a financial advisor. We think there are actually points in time when it makes sense for you to cross that threshold to seeking professional guidance. Yeah, so let's let's quickly kind of go through these because I know that we we talk about this is that there's going to be some life and efficiency considerations Absolutely. that you ought to look at. What are, I, I've heard you do this several times, Bo. What do you tell people on when you might want to consider hiring a yeah, financial advisor? I think, I think generally it can boil down to sort of three things. One, the gravity of your decisions is so great, you don't want to go at it alone anymore. If you make a big mistake on $5,000, you haven't really hurt yourself that much. If you make a big mistake on $500,000, now you're starting to talk about something really significant. So the gravity of your decisions is large. Number two, there's there's just not enough time in the day with social commitments and community commitments and work and family and all these other things pulling on you. 
all your finances just fall to the back burner and you don't have time to get it back on the front burner. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is, as we get older and as our financial situation advances, it just tends to get more complicated. Things are just, we don't know what we don't know. You want to keep it out of the ditch. We want to keep it out of the ditch. And then here's, I'll put a fourth one out there that we've seen recently. These are people who are spectacular and probably in another life could have been financial advisors. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about my engineers, my pilots, I mean, I'm trying to think of our clients that I've been like so impressed with. I have a, a brand new client that's out of the medical yeah, field. Yeah, I was say doctors. That, that is, um, that's just brilliant. And it's one of those things that they're now, we're, we're picking up a new breed of clients where they're so good, but they're worried when they can't speak for themselves anymore, they want to make sure their significant other is not getting ripped off. That's so right. they try to find somebody who thinks and acts like they do yep. to be that backup plan. So that's even, we're even picking up high level people that do a great job themselves, but want to have a backstop in case they can't speak to keep the family enterprise going. So it's powerful. Also, I want to throw one more thing out there. You hear us talk a lot about if people don't have four or $500,000, you're like, well, what do they do? Mm-hmm. We love target retirement funds. We love you know, the low-cost options at a lot of the robos, the target retirement funds. But the question is, can you outgrow a target retirement fund? And Bo, we found that there are some points where you do outgrow it. When do those, when do those times kind of happen? Yeah, when your assets reach a certain size, you can take advantage of things like asset location, not just how you spread the assets, but the type of accounts you hold. You can take advantage of things like tax loss harvesting, capital gain avoidance strategies. You can look at charitable giving of appreciated securities. There are just ways where we feel your financial situation, your portfolio, graduate beyond the solution that a target retirement fund is for you. So I think I just heard you. Tax location matters. Loss harvesting matters. You probably want to get creative with some charitable giving if you have some legacy plans. And then don't forget about just as you get bigger, more diversification or just customized choices on the investment options. So that leads to, that's also a great segue into what's the difference? Because this is something, if you want to know, you were talking about how people, you get annoyed, a pet peeve is when people say that they don't pay the commission that the insurance Uh company does. My pet peeve is when people don't understand the difference between a financial planner versus an investment manager. Oh, yeah. Because there is a, because there is a, I will tell you, because here's the question difference between financial planning and investment management. And I'll tell you what sets this up, Bo, is that there's a new breed. I love the competition that is being created within the investment marketplace. We have zero trading mm-hmm. fees. We have internal expenses that are slapping around near zero. So, some even on index zero funds. Yeah, and so index funds, everything, it's been great. And an area that has recently come about is, well, can you, if we can do this with the investments, can we do this with financial planning? So you've seen robo-advisors come on the scene like Betterment, yep. and even, and then every one of the big boys has a platform. You have Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity. They all have they call it financial planning, but it's really investment management exactly platforms. Right. And so kind of let's walk them through what the differences are there. Yeah. So the big thing, like you can see a robo now that might do some loss harvesting, or it might look at asset location, or it might even help you with allocation decisions. But in our purview, that's really all underneath that investment management umbrella. And we think to do a good job of doing a full picture financial plan, looking at the entire circumstance, investment planning is a piece. It's an important piece. But it's not the whole piece. It's just one piece of the puzzle. You have to understand how the investment portfolio matches with the estate plan and matches with your tax situation and your insurance and risk management are covered. If you don't have someone who's looking at all of those pieces and they're just looking at one account or one uh, 
piece of your portfolio, I'd argue they're not really doing financial planning. They're they're doing investment management. Yeah, I mean, I think a big clue is if your financial advisor, say you can go with any of the big ones, Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard, and we hear from, the reason I know that I'm speaking right is because we have several of you work at Vanguard uh-huh. or Fidelity, these things, and you, you kind of whisper to us that you listen to the show, and you're like, gosh, I always tell people, because I have somebody who has a question about property and casualty, or I have a person that has a question about their 401k, but since their 401k is not with us, and I'm like, we can't we help can't them anything, because yeah. we only can work with them what's right before us at the custodian we work for, that's not financial planning because there's so much. There's estate planning, retirement planning. There's all this type of analysis that needs to go that's way above and beyond. So that's why when people find out we push a lot of index funds, they're like, what are people paying you Uh for? I'm like, investing has become commoditized, guys. you got to understand, you better be doing more than that so that we can make sure that people understand they're in a great financial situation for the long term. And that leads to... Let's talk about what a real financial advisor will do versus those that you're just not quite sure if they really are financial advisors. Now, what I think is funny about that picture, (laughs) y'all have not figured out, I have very squinty eyes. I can still see through those eyes. I I don't believe it. I thought you fell asleep standing up. No, I mean, I have have really squinty eyes, but I think it's a great setup. When I look at this is the way Daniel set up these photos. I'm the real financial advisor. You notice that? Oh, I didn't even put that together because I'm. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to give too much away. You didn't say anything in show notes, so I was like, oh, I'm gonna let him roll either. with it because it, 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 it's good. Together. So here's some of the things I did, and this is just a taste of what a real financial advisor would do. help you with your net worth. Man, mm-hmm. do we know that is the invisible hand tool that's going to wake up your brain? Is that net worth? Your typical planner probably, if they're really trying to get your life in order, they're going to help you with that. They're going to help you organize what's going on with that. I think what that means, too, is they're going to ask you questions about things that maybe they don't even make money off of. They may ask you questions about rental property. They may ask you questions about voluntary deferred compensation plans, 529s, life. They're going to ask you questions about things that affect your total net worth that might not even fall in the purview of what they bill on. That's a sign that you might be working with a real advisor. Um, cash flow tax planning. Mm-hmm. I mean, because how often do we talk about talk to our clients about taxes? Uh, I would say almost every time we talk, because it permeates all aspects of our financial life. Yeah, because I mean, tax efficiency is definitely important. We talked about tax location, but there's also just understanding when you get it. You know, look, I'm not trying to compete with the CPA. I'm not trying to steal the preparation business, but I do think it's important for your financial planner to at least have a healthy relationship and understanding with the tax code so that they can be that bridge between your tax preparer, but also kind of be the safeguard to check out what work your tax preparer is doing for you as well. Here's a real good check. If you work with a financial advisor, have they ever asked to see your tax return or every year when you file your tax return, they give you any thoughts on it? That's just a little thing you can check. I alluded to this already, but we had put in here all of your investment accounts, not just the investment accounts that are right before them. We see advisors all the time. They're like, okay, well, yeah, I'll look at your IRA or I'll look at your brokerage account, but your 401k, that's with your company, that's over here. We'll just have it do its own thing. For most folks, their 401k might be the biggest part of their mm-hmm. financial puzzle, and it might be the part they're saving to the most. So it should definitely be part of the overall plan. Are we looking at whether you should take a lump sum from your pension or mm-hmm. take the pensions? And people are always, I think they're shocked when we look at them, like, Take the pension, you know, because a lot of here's a little dirty little secret of the industry. A lot of those pensions, the reason you're getting those buyout options 
is the pensions have very lucrative assumptions built into the way they were designed. And the companies are trying to get rid of some of those long-term obligations. So they're offering to give you a lump sum. So it is very important that you do a full analysis should you take the pensions, which is the annuity payments over your lifetime or your survivor's lifetime, or should you take the lump sum? Yep. A lot of people really think when you talk to a financial advisor, they're always going to say lump sum. That is just not the case. But it, it goes all over the place. It depends upon really the design and structure. But that's something that a good financial planner could actually help you analyze, take an analysis of. Um Determine if you're properly insured without selling insurance products. Now, look, I, I don't. I know we're going to get the comments because we get them all the time. Yes, there are some financial advisors out there who are fantastic who also happen to sell insurance. What we believe is that it makes it a lot easier for us to just remove that conflict altogether. We will do insurance analysis till we are blue in the face, and then when it comes time to actually buy the policies, we're more than happy to introduce you to someone or for you to work with your agent to get the policy in place. I just think when you have that separation, it really does help. Well, I mean, it makes me think of the Looney Tune cartoons is that, you know, Bugs Bunny, when he's thirsty, he's everything looks like, even though he's in a de desert, like it's an oasis. That's right. Yep. And, I, and I found the same thing is when you know that you get a hundred percent commission of the first year's premiums. I want you all to think about that. When you have somebody pitch you a life insurance product, think about the fact that the person sitting across the table is going to get a hundred percent, not one percent. They're going to get a hundred percent of your probably first year premium. It starts messing with their brains. That's exactly it, right. it is that, that's why I don't. I like taking. I love insurance. I'm big about you know talking to clients. We even have a group of people we work with, but I just like taking out that conflict of interest. Yep. Um, talking about when you're going to retire. This yeah. is a big one. A big thing is you know one of the questions. I think this is the most common question someone asks us is, do I have enough? How do I know when I'll have enough? And then how do I figure out what to do once I've got enough? A good financial advisor should be able to help you with those questions all along the way. And they'll help you stress test to see if you've broken. I mean, that's the thing. We have so many, we have we have fire people, we have, you know, people who've been retired for a number of years. We're trying to, before you actually walk through that gateway or that threshold of saying, I'm no longer working with my hands, my back, and my brain. You want to make sure that you've looked at it in the worst case scenario. And that's why we like Monte Carlo simulation, yep. stress testing it. That's such an important thing. And then, Bo, I want to close it out kind of as we're working through these last few things. Quarterbacking, we can't, we don't typically, you don't see a lot of attorneys that are financial planners, but they can definitely quarterback that estate plan development. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how many advisors I know that they don't request copies of estate documents. They don't actually do a review. They don't look at beneficiaries. That stuff matters. If you want an advisor to actually be looking at your whole picture, they need to understand what the estate plan is. So if it's not, not something in their purview, it may be something you want to ask them about. And then the last two things, just cash reserves. You guys have asked me. Am I three months? Am I six months? Am I more because maybe I'm approaching retirement in the next 12 to 18 months? Your good financial planner can help you with that. And of course, the kiddos. You know, if you're trying to figure out 529s, how they work and integrate with education credits, your financial planner, a good one, should be able to help you work through all those things. What, what you probably heard there is that if you're working with a financial advisor who we would classify as a good financial advisor, there's not a lot of financial questions that are off the table. They'll certainly be quick to say, oh, well, maybe we should check with your CPA or, oh, I don't know, let's check with your state attorney. But they're willing to provide gu guidance, counsel, insight, and weigh in on every area of your financial life. And I think that's what you want from someone who you're essentially hiring to help be the CFO of your enterprise that you're running. So if we're going to talk about what a real financial advisor will do, I think it's important to talk about what they will not do. 
<laughs> and look whose picture is on that. Uh, see, I didn't even put together that I was the not look real at, financial. Look at mean mugging too. What's, I mean, hey, look at that photo. What's the What's the look from Zoolander? You know, what I'm talking about. What's he call that? Is it blue? Oh, was it blue steel? Blue steel is or something. Blue, that's the blue steel right there. What do you think about that? <laughs> so let's talk about what a, a a real financial advisor will not do. And this we're just kind of speaking experience because these are the things that we are just admitting. Hey, we're probably not experts that this isn't something that someone who's looking for this service would come to us and ask for. We typically, this is one that um, I'm always amazed when I talk to family and friends. We're not going to get you typically out of consumer debt. Here, here's a cold, hard fact. You're talking about steel blue. or Blue, blue steel. The, blue steel. <laughs> steel blue. <laughs> you can tell how many times I've seen Zoolander. <laughs> blue steel. Ben still don't get mad that I said that. But blue steel, it's, it's I mean, if, if I was giving you a cold, hard fact... With that look, I should make you just hone in with that look right now. I don't think I could is, um, it. Is that most successful people don't struggle with consumer debt? No, one of the things that one of the things that probably got them to success was was either screwing it up and fixing it and doing better, or just never getting in that problem. They understand that being successful financially is about building and having positive net worth, not borrowing and having negative. And net look, worth. there's resources to get you out of that stuff. I mean. Dave Ramsey, we've done shows on it. You can, you know, do-it-yourself tip is contact the National Foundation for Credit Counseling. If you, if you, you've got to break that cycle so that you can actually start building assets. And that's just, you don't need a financial planner to get you out of debt. Because the last thing you need to do is stack on one more hand that's working on you. You need to, you need to get to a level of success where the advisor is a benefit that is guiding and shaping what you do have, not what you owe. Yep. That is just not a healthy thing. The, the second thing that we think a real advisor won't do is if you work with a real financial advisor, they're not going to pitch you on how they're going to help you beat the market. Yeah. Uh, that's just not something. Now, maybe investment managers might want to tout that they can do that. But if someone's really talking a lot about performance and how they're going to outperform and how they're going to do this, they're probably focused more on investment management than they are on financial planning. And I would my spidey senses would start going off. If yep. you look at the stats we've done on all the shows on how often index funds are so much more successful, and it makes sense. Their costs are lower. Their taxes are lower. It's just hard for managers to overcome that headwind that's facing them. Yep. So don't try to beat the market. It's just not It's not an easy process. Another thing that we see poor advisors do, and unfortunately we probably see this one more frequently than anything else, they solve all problems with the same solution. Yep. You want to say for college, oh, I've got an insurance policy for that. You want to protect against premature death, I got an insurance policy for that. You want to build for retirement, I got an insurance policy for that. If someone has very one-sided, single answers to a wide array of problems, it might be a sign that it's not the perfect advisor for you. And then the last thing I put on here, the financial advisor is not going to help you skip steps. Oh, that's such a good one. Because Well, it's, it's true because we all are looking for the easy way. It's just like, if I, I've told this, when I go to the gym, I've told one of the, the trainers that, and the coaches that I've worked with, I've said, if they could give me a pill to do this, uh, and, and it wasn't like side effects like all the performance enhancing uh -huh. drugs. You would do it. Most Americans would do this. They would not put in. He goes, I wouldn't do it if they had a pill that would do all that without the side effects. There's no magical thing. And it's the truth. It's the same thing for financial planning and be creating financial independence. You're going to have to do the hard work. You're not going to be able to skip steps. Right. So pay attention to that. This is a long-term journey. It's a marathon. Yep. You can't skip steps as you're building success. Now we made that. We we laid that out pretty binary. What does a financial? What will a financial advisor for sure do? And then what will they not do? There is a little bit of a gray area. So we yeah. want to kind of speak to that a little bit because there is 
there's some nuance in there a little bit. Yeah, because we have worked in these areas that we're about to talk about. The gray zone is really helping you control your spending. Yep. Controlling spending is different than having debt problems. Yeah. They're, those two are not exactly the same thing. Because you can pay attention to what are your, what's your cash flow, your cash management plan, what's your expenditures going to be in retirement. How do you transition from saver to spender, because that's a very important yep. thing that a good financial planner will do. So that does fit into our purview. Mm-hmm. Um, keep going, Bo. I'm sorry. No, I, I was going to say, I, I think that another thing is they can help you understand what you can spend. Because yep. one of the things that we have clients ask all the time is, am I saving enough? Or I want to go do this trip, and I want to upgrade my car, but I don't know if I can. One of the big things we try to do with clients, especially when they're in the accumulation phase, is say, if you can set yourself up to pay yourself first, save what you're supposed to be saying, understand what you're building towards, you can remove a lot of the spending guilt that we see with folks yep. who are still in the That's accumulation exactly phase. Right. If you have a good advisor who can help counsel you through that and tell you how much you should be saving and why you should be saving that amount, on the converse side, they can also tell you, hey, it's okay to go cover the back deck. It's okay to upgrade the car. It's okay to go on that trip. I think a good advisor can help you spend money in the same way they can help you save money. And bridge that between your relationships. That's right. How often do we have the tightwad spouse uh-huh. and then the spouse that is reasonable but needs somebody to kind of be the arbitrator That's right. between and speak the language of their spouse that doesn't want to come so off true. of anything, who's having, once again, kind of stuck on that saver versus spender. We kind of help break the tile on those things. Yep. Um, I, we had put in here in the show notes, create an estate plan for you. What do I mean by that? Because we do a lot of this stuff. We, we do the checklist. We talk to people about guardians, beneficiaries, the structure of trust and things. But what do we mean by we're not going to be able to create an estate plan or it's going to be a gray zone? Yeah, we think that we can give you guidance and counsel on an estate plan. But ultimately, when it comes time to draft the documents, you really want an attorney that's going to do that. You want someone who's actually probates in the state in which you live, that they know the state laws, they know how the estate document needs to be written. What you also want a financial advisor to be able to do, though, is correct a poor estate attorney if there was a plan that maybe was too complex or it had too many moving pieces or it didn't fit your situation. A good advisor should be able to review the work that an estate attorney does and be able to lean into that and say, okay, yeah, that's a good fit or no, maybe that's not a great fit. But they're probably not going to be able to actually draft the documents or set up the trust themselves. What I always like to say is that I always tell people, a good financial planner will go through like a checklist of all the docu- all the things you need to have ready mm-hmm. to take to a good estate attorney. And you, just the preparation will hopefully save you some dollars. That's right. Yep. That's a big part. Same thing. And that's a great transition to the last thing, tax preparation. Oh, yeah. We do the same thing. I will tell you, I think one of the biggest value adds that our clients get the biggest kick out of is that we help consolidate all the 1099s and stuff from the assets we're managing and either get it to their tax preparer or for the crazy do-it-yourselfers, we send it to them. By the way, I was calling my mom this morning. Uh-huh. She lets me know that Frank uh-huh. is going to be doing his own taxes. So you know what that means? Bron's Congratulations. Bron is doing probably doing, doing my mother's taxes because I've told him they need to be working with a CPA. <laughs> Oh, Lordy. I'm so but excited it's, um, about it that. Is, I just figured you'd find that oh, funny yeah. because it is one of those things where we will help coordinate. I think a good financial advisor will kind of bridge that because, we, like I said, we're not trying to compete with the tax preparers, but we definitely make their jobs easier. And I think the ones that will embrace that when they know that we're not trying to hurt them mm-hmm. are coming the way. They love having somebody that can work between them and the client to get things taken care of. At the end of the day, we, we think that hiring an advisor can and should be a huge asset to your financial life. But it's a big decision, and, and we, we say this kind of jokingly, but we mean it. When we talk to a prospect, it's a little like a marriage. We tell them very early on, hey, we're, we're going to go through 
a very defined, involved process before we even make the decision to work together. Because when we work with someone, we want to be working with them for the next 20, 30, 40 years. You should approach a decision to hire an advisor with that gravity, recognizing how, how big it is. And one of the best ways you can do is educate yourself, understanding the ABCs, all the credentials, understanding what the different type of compensation structures is, understanding maybe some questions to even ask a financial advisor. An educated consumer is a better consumer. And here's the other thing. This show showed me when we were doing the show prep, we don't have the deliverable yet, but you guys are going to need some questions. So instead of us going out there, because there's checklists, all kind of other things you can do for knowing what questions to ask a financial advisor, we're actually working on that right now. Yep. So I want you, and that's a great segue to kind of close out the show. You've got to go to moneyguy.com, check out our resource page. We do shows, we get inspired from, we create things that you can use to accelerate your success plan. And one of the things we're working on right now, and in the next hopefully month, we will have a questions you should ask a financial advisor. Sure. That will be a great resource for you. And that also applies to this abundance cycle. We talk about it. I told you, we get nervous about doing a show like this because it did seem like a lot of the stuff we said a good financial advisor is what abounds. So you're like, wait a minute, these guys just kind of sell themselves. This is what I would ask you to do. Go look at our other content because this concept works is because we give away tons of free information. This is just how we are wired is we want you to be successful. We want you to come to Money Guy Show to be learn, apply the concepts, continue to grow. And one day you're going to reach a level of success. You're going to probably say, when do I need to hire a financial advisor? You're going to go find this show uh -huh. and then it's going to hit you. This is the abundance cycle. I've now reached the graduation point. I don't know what I don't know. I've gotten, it's just life has gotten complicated. And I just want to make sure I don't run this thing in the ditch because I am now the CEO of a seven figure enterprise Let's get these guys in here. Let's see, make sure that, you know, that I have a co-pilot. And for you young savers, you're now getting to the point where maybe you have a half a million dollars and you're like, asset location, that's a term I've never even heard. You're going to think about the abundance cycle. And we love doing this. This show started in 2006 as a just way to educate. It was supposed to be an education platform. It wasn't until like year two and a half to three that we got our first client off of. And that's when I was like, Wait a minute, we, we, we could do something. We can with get this. clients off of this. So that's why I always get so nervous when we talk about things like this, because I want you to know that our heart is in this. And I think that's why I challenge you. If this is your first show, you're like, oh, this is another group of guys trying to sell something. Go watch our other content. You're going to say, no, this is our passion. And we love to have people who work with us. And we love to have a team that has this passion of an educator and just makes things happen for the Money Guy family. If you haven't had a chance to go out to YouTube, maybe you're listening to this out in iTunes or Audio World, make sure you go to YouTube, subscribe. If you haven't had a chance to check out our Instagram, we are now putting up videos and stories on Instagram so you can kind of see behind the scenes of what it is that we do on a daily basis. You can go check out our Facebook, go check out our Twitter. We love connecting with you guys. Go to the website, moneyguy.com. All right, Bo. Money Guy team, out. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. Brian Preston is a principal with Abound Wealth Management. Abound Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Security and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with the securities laws and regulations. Abound Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment or legal advice. Mm -hmm.